we got the record button hit, so we are going to be recording tonight. Uh, welcome to Clubhouse. Welcome to the National Fire Radio Clubhouse. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the initial push, which is coordinated engine and truck company operations, getting that first line in service and with the support of the special service, the truck company, uh, and so on. And we're going to hit on a bunch of different things there tonight. Good topic. Uh, real just great bunch of guys up top with me here. Um, I consider you all very good friends, and uh, I look up to all you in this industry. You guys are uh, really making a difference and doing the right thing every day. So it's nice to have you guys here. Just a couple of housekeeping things real quick. Uh, we are recording this. I do have to say that so everybody is aware. Later on in the conversation, if you have any questions, raise your hand. We'll bring you up, man. Uh, we're always looking for questions from the audience. We're always looking for uh, anyone that wants to uh, hop up and uh, make a point or ask a question of the guys up on stage. Uh, please do so. I'll moderate with that, and I'll bring you up when I think the time's right. So just be patient. Uh, ask your question. Once we move on from the question, I'm going to put you back down into the audience. Uh, I see you guys are doing very well on the mute right now. I do appreciate that because it eliminates all the background noise. Uh, so it just cleans that up a little bit, which is cool. Um, other than that, man, I think it's uh, we're in a good spot to get rolling here. I want to do uh, introductions. Uh, Mickey, since on my phone, you're the first one lined up here. Uh you can go into as much detail or as little detail as possible, but just uh, a quick uh, sentence or two about yourself, just so everybody knows uh, who you are. What's up, guys? My name is Mickey Fowl. I am the guy behind Top Four Tactics. If I put my thoughts into words, that's about it. I love that, man. And that is, I'll tell you, man, I have to read your post two, three, four times when you post them because they're just way too intellectual for me. And I'm not a very smart guy. So, uh, Mick, man, uh, always awesome to have you. And uh, thanks for being here tonight. Sean, you're next in line for me, pal. Uh, just a little background about yourself, and then uh, we'll get we'll move over to Larry. Yeah, hey, thanks again for having me, Jeremy. I'm uh, privileged to be up here with these two Uh Good guys, and and you also. But, oh, thanks, uh, man. I appreciate. It. Even though I spell your, <laughs> even though I spell your name wrong consistently, every time. I know, brother. Disappeared. I apologize. So, no worries. So yeah, I'm a captain in uh, Buffalo, New York. Captain of Truck Seven here. Been uh 23 years. I've been on the job. I teach teach on the side a little bit. Teach for Bobby Eckert and Eckert Fire Tactics. Uh, I teach for New York State. So. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. They're always good, whether I'm in the audience or I'm up on the stage. Uh, looking forward to tonight. I love it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you being here as always. And uh, without further ado, Larry D. Camille. Larry, thanks for being here, pal. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, other than your beer of choice tonight, uh, give me a little background about yourself. Well, I retired last year from the city of Houston after 27 years. And I'm the fire chief for a suburban department outside of Houston. Beautiful. I thank you, sir. So listen, the three of you guys, we've done projects before. Um, all three of you have been on the podcast with me. Uh, I consider you guys uh, some of the best, and, and I truly appreciate our relationships um, and, uh, and so on. And so to start the conversation tonight, this was like a last minute, let's get a clubhouse together. It's been a little while. So, um, you know, I'm glad that we're doing this. And Larry, if you could mute real quick, you got some background noise there, brother. But um, so what I want to do real quick, just uh, go over to housekeeping a little bit more because we do have a bunch of people that walked in. We are going to do questions tonight uh, on the topic. So if you have a question or anything that you want to ask or you want to include something that maybe we missed, feel free to raise your hand. We'll bring you up on stage. Uh, boom. Throw it out there. Uh, we'll have some back and forth and I'll get you back down into the audience in case somebody else wants to come back up. 
we are recording this episode, so be aware that if you do come up on stage, you are being recorded, and that's going to be used for you know further publication. So, uh, without further ado, um, you know it was funny. I hit up Larry the other day. I said, Larry, I, let's do a clubhouse. Larry's always asking, "Hey, man, let's do one. Let's do one." Um, cause he's kind of like me. He doesn't know when to stop talking. And so we talk a lot. And, uh, and so this is the best platform for that. And, uh, and so it's just become a lot of fun back and forth. And so why not what we do on the, on the back end, do it out front in the public forum where people can ask questions, because I'll tell you, man, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the fire service to date because I get to hang with some of the best names and some of the smartest people in the fire service every single day, whether it's text message, phone calls, podcasting or whatever. It's just I'm, I'm just super lucky to be able to surround myself with incredible people. So for that, I'm grateful. And so now we get to have these conversations and with a with a platform like Clubhouse, we just you know, we get to do that and people get to be a part of the conversation and ask those questions. So let's move forward real quick. Mickey, Sean and Larry, thank you. Um, the, the conversation we thought about tonight was the initial push. You know, we talked about coordinated fire attack. Larry and I were talking about maybe doing some coordinated fire attack. And it got me thinking about the importance of getting water on a fire and getting that first line into position. And to do that, it's definitely a coordinated process between the engine and the truck. And that's just a matter of fact. Uh, when we talk about engine and truck tonight, there's a lot of different ways we could talk about it because I'm sure a lot of people in here uh, tonight listening don't have a dedicated truck or a dedicated engine. They might be running a Quint or they might be running an engine company that you know is also responsible for truck duties or squad duties also. So I understand that. And so as we go through this, we'll, we'll kind of, I'd, I'd love to, for the three of you guys, uh, because you all have very different backgrounds in different parts of the country, um, which have influenced your take and your practices and responsibilities and operational tactics. Um, I'd love for that to play into the conversation and also talk about maybe the shorthanded companies as well, or the uh, co-mingled companies that have to do both responsibilities, uh, maybe in a, in a different setting than the urban jungle, if you will. So going forward, talking about the initial push coordinated fire attack, it is critically important to get water on the fire. We get water on the fire. The problem starts to go away. But there's a lot of issues and a lot of things that go into that, just uh, the simple of getting water on the fire. So to start off the conversation about engine and truck work and how important it is to feed off of one another, um, I'd love to start the conversation. Larry, since you were the guy that I went to first with this, um, I'd love to start that conversation. Let's talk about the importance of the engine company, and then we can tack on to maybe as the conversation goes and we start getting water on that fire, we can start talking about all the responsibilities that the, the truck positions need to take in order to allow for us to get water on the fire. So on the initial setup, through training, through mentality, through uh, your street smart presence, what do we need to know as an engine company, the most basic but important things we need as an engine company to be able to stretch that line correctly and get water to the fire? Well, thanks, Jeremy. I think. And we lost him. You know, he's got to pay his wireless bill. I think that's critically important. And now, now I got Mickey and Sean up on the stage who are both my truck guys. So, Sean, I'm going to slide over to you. Um, and uh, let's talk about engine work real quick, if you don't mind. I know it's been a little while since you've done it, but the importance of the engine company, right? And some of the things that, you know, the staples of an engine company that allow us to be well-oiled and to get that line into position. Maybe you can throw out some points, some ideas, some conversation there. Sure. No, no pressure. All my notes are on truck work, but I, I, I did the engine. <laughs> I did the engine thing for a few years, but no, but I, I'll ask the guy, you said it a little bit in the intro. It, it starts with training, it starts with drilling, but it starts to, when you start, if we fast forward to the fire scene, it all 
begins with good estimation of the stretch. It has crews that know what they're doing. The ability, if it's a one-man or two-man making the stretch, uh, <clears throat> getting that hose in place, getting it to the seat of the fire. Because engines, whether us truckies want to admit it or not, they bring the solution, like you mentioned. They bring the solution to our problem. They're bringing that water. The faster they can get it in place, the quicker our problem is going to get better. You know, there's too many times where you see engines stretch to the wrong spot because they just made a quick snap decision instead of taking that extra five, 10 seconds. Or as we fast forward, communicating with the truck that may have got inside and got a look and <clears throat> save some time by waiting, which sounds sounds strange, right? But, but that extra 10, 20 seconds to get a good report of where the fire is or where the best spot to lay that line is is so much easier than having to reposition a charge hose line. So, oh, my God. You bring up, you, <clears throat> Sean, you bring up a, a great point because I think too often, Larry, mute yourself, brother, and welcome back to the conversation. Hopefully you paid your Wi-Fi bill, so we got you back. Um, Sean, so you bring up a very good point, and that's patience, right? I think too often on arrival, we're so hot and heavy to stretch that line, and if that fire is not showing, we don't fire. We don't have fires out those out the windows. We don't have fire in the rear that we know and we can pinpoint, right? And we got smoke seeping from every cook, you know, every angle and and nook and cranny of this building, right? At the end of the day, we gotta we gotta know where that seat is, right? We need to find that fire, and and so maybe sometimes you hold up and have a little bit of patience. Uh, for that line to be directed because more effectively, if we know where the seat or the angle or the entrance to the seat of the fire, it's going to speed up our ability to put water on that fire. So maybe some patience. Yeah, absolutely. Patience. And you know, the fires where it's blown out the window, we just talked about softball. Those are softballs. It's yeah. Easy. I know where I need to go, but it's when, when you just have that puffing smoke, and it's coming out of the basement windows, the first floor, second floor, coming out of the E lines, where you have to do some more, you know, some decision making, some research, some, uh, you know, recon, if you will, because that could change the stretch too, right? You know, if, if, if you think it's a basement fire, you may stretch it. Here we use mostly pre connects. So we may take a four length pre connect, but all of a sudden, I, you know, once I get in and figure it out, oh, damn, it's in the attic. Now I may be short. So yeah, patience and, and good size up, knowing your buildings. And having your crews squared away. Uh, as an engine boss, I used to take off. I tell the guys, I'm going to jet. We're first due. I'm going to go to the back. I'm going to get the, get the view from the rear. Mostly, we're fortunate here that most of our buildings are relatively easy to get to the get get a view from the rear. Our typical house fire, anyways. And when I come back out, I want them with a with a hose line almost on their shoulder, ready to make that call. And if if something I see tells me is different, then just drop it, grab another one. And we'll I'll explain later, but. I want thinking firemen. I want think, especially the engine guys. I want them thinking. I, I, you know, not just Mongo fire. Let's go. You know, think about what we're doing and where we're going to go, and and <clears throat> everything's going to get better. I like that, Larry. Welcome back to the conversation, brother. I don't know how much you heard, but uh, Sean brought up a great point, right? We start talking about the initial stretch, uh, engine company arriving on location, and, and sometimes a little bit of patience uh, to take a half a step back and to uh, do some recon before we sh we dedicate and stretch that line to a specific spot. You want to hit on that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think to add to, to the one additional point is we need to allow individuality. Uh, you know, all these guys come from medium to large, you know, uh, size departments. And what we found in, in HFD is they want all the lines set up the same way. We don't allow individuality based upon the territory needs. We've got good young firefighters and officers uh, at 68 when I retired that aren't afraid to break that mold and do what needs to 
be done in terms of setting up their pre-connects because HFD is a pre-connect department, not a big fan of dead loads. And so they weren't afraid to set up a long line. They weren't afraid to do a two and a half with the reducer to an inch and a half to be able to get in play quick. And so we have to allow that individuality if it's based upon good reasoning, such as two or three story garden compartments that are set up in a courtyard configuration, which 68 territory is full of. And so we, we need to allow that individuality instead of the standardized mindset of you will always have a 200 foot pre-connect with, with a fog nozzle when it may work in 39's territory, but in 68's it doesn't. And I, I guess for me, I mean, that, that to me is just common sense, right? But on a, a, and I'm not a big department guy, right? So, you know, to understand that, you know, there's standardization across the board for, for a city that is so vast and different and every first due district is made up of something different, whether it's, you know, tenement loads to high rise packs to, you know, your long, le- your long line and, and everything in between. I mean, uh, individuality is, is so important. I, it's just, I, I didn't even think of going down that road with this conversation tonight, but I, I would love for you to, you guys to stress on that a little bit more. I mean, get out, walk the streets, learn your first due, understand what lines work for you. No. Oh yeah. And then everybody's a, at, at the risk of saying it, you know, everybody watches things on YouTube and they think that they're an expert based upon something they see that works in Nashville or Anchorage or New Hampshire. It doesn't mean that it, it won't work there, but they may have implemented it for a certain reason. I mean, we've all seen the same hose load called 12 different names and everybody thinks that it's a cool thing to do, but until you drill it, until you apply it in the buildings in your territory, I just think that sometimes, especially and call it the, the newer generations. I think we get caught up in the fad moment uh, in the fire service. And I think that with the reducing fire duty, uh, I think that we're falling more and more subject to that because, well, if it works up here in Maryland, it's got to work down here. Well, we also, we run cross legs. They run off the front and the back of a pumper and, or an engine. And so I just think that there's a number of different things that, that we have to remember that while we were part of the American fire service, we have to set up for our respective no, I love that. Absolutely love that. So get out, walk your streets, stretch hose, stretch your lines. Um, I love it. I think we are seeing more of that. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, you mentioned like the Facebook farm and you're seeing it on YouTube and then, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, right? The best part about it is now more than ever, there's platforms out there that show you what everybody else is doing. But before you implement that and make that the word of the Lord, you need to make sure that it works for you. Get out there, pack it, train it, repack it, train it, repack it, train it. And, and you've got to go through those, those, uh, those paces. And you've got to go through those reps to make sure that it, it exemplifies the, the way you operate and it supports your tactics and strategies. Mickey, we're pulling up with the engine. I know you're a big truck guy, but I, I, you know, I do want to hear your take from the, from the truck position to the importance of, of some factors that the engine needs to look for on arrival and getting that line stretch. You want to talk about a few things? Yeah, just real quick, going back to what you were just speaking of, um, a little quick tip you can use, uh, especially for guys that work in areas that have pre-connects and more of a private dwelling, residential, suburban area. Um, just take a few minutes and you can measure your own front yard. And that's from the curb to the front door and then from the curb to the rear door. And that way you can kind of gauge what line you may pull when you pull up at three in the morning to a different building because you know your yard better than anyone. So if you can kind of gauge, okay, this looks like my front yard, I know what line to pull. It's just one of those pre-planned things that don't necessarily have to be out and about in the community doing your thing, walking the streets. You can do it right in your front yard. 
Um, so, as far as the first two engine pulling up, uh, you hear me, Jeremy? I'm yeah. getting poor connection on my phone. No, you're good, brother. All I right, got cool. you. You're fine. Um, so, so what was the question? So as, so, as an engine guy, what, what am I looking for? Or Well, yeah, I mean, you know, here's, here's the thing, right? I mean, I'm stacked here with truck guys tonight. And so, you know, I want the point of view, though. There, there's a bunch of nuggets that need to be said from the engine boss in the back and to the nozzle fireman, to the backup fireman, if you even have that on your engine, right? I mean, it might be a, a driver, an officer, and one in the back, or it just might be a driver and a guy in the front seat with the driver, right? It, we're, our country is made up of so many different departments with staffing and everything else, but there's got to be a few staples and a few nuggets that we need to talk about. Sean hit on, you know, the fact that patience, right? We want to be able to stretch efficiently and to stretch efficiently, it helps to know where the fire is located, right? So you got any other, you know, just quick staples or nuggets that we need to consider? I want to really, I'm going basic and then we're going to kind of dive in, but um, I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, you know, we always talk about the coordinated attack, but I don't think we necessarily understand what we're in coordination with. Um, the word patience, that's something I always speak of when I'm talking about the coordinated attack. Without patience, you can't get in a coordinated attack, and with a coordinated attack, you must understand tempo. And every tempo is different. Every fire creates a separate tempo. And when you find that tempo, that should dictate from that point forward how the rest of the fire is going to uh, play out for you. So as far as locating the fire, right, so not everyone has that, that truck company that we all, we all wish we had. Um, it could be just the first guy arriving on scene, right? You don't have to wait for that first line to be stretched. You have to be in there searching for the fire. So we talk about search and we talk about locating the fire. And this comes back with that tempo is locating that fire. So to get back to your, your question, Jeremy, when you're pulling down the block and it's out the front windows, you know where the fire is. So as the first officer, truck or firefighter on the scene, you have to make that conscious decision that I'm going to go in locate that fire, isolate that room, then search my way away from that fire back to where the engine's stretching and tell the engine boss, okay, down the hallway, out, out, out the windows on the right. You got it. Boom. Same thing with fire in the rear. You pull up, fire's out the rear. You're sizing it up as the engine officer and the truck officer or the first firefighter on scene. You find the fire in the rear, you're now searching away from that fire to the front door. Now, when I say that, your fire, that your search starts from the point of fire, don't disregard searching your way to that fire. You are going to search your way to that fire, but your main objective is locating that fire. Now the problem lies when that fire is in mid-span in, in an apartment or a, or a private dwelling, whatever building you're fighting. Now that size up when you arrive, that size up on the fly, I like to speak of. If it's mid-span in the apartment, you have to take note to the building. Okay, there's a front porch in the front. Portable ground ladders can get to a front porch. Maybe there's a setback in the rear. I can't really get a portable ladder in the rear. So when you locate that fire, you're searching your way back. What way are you going to go now if the fire is mid-span? By sizing up the building when you arrive, you can make your decision what way you're going to go. So if fire is mid-span, you got a walkout basement in the rear, but it's two stories in the front. I'm going to search my way to the rear bedroom, searching that way, knowing that those people are probably the most danger. And the front side of the house can be picked up with portable ladders, aerial ladders, whatever it may be, easier access. So understanding where the fire lies within the building, you can really tell by pulling up on arrival what your search is going to conduct of once you locate that fire. Oh, oh my God. Did you hit on a couple things there? So, all right. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy. Yeah. I just wanted to touch on something with the stretch too, as far as the company officer side of it, especially coming from a department with low manpower. 
one of the great tools that we use is uh, we, like, we'll put up a cones in the, in the north section of our our firehouse, just mark out the, the distances so guys can get themselves uh, like looking at what 200 feet looks like, what 300 feet looks like, what 400 feet looks like for, you know, for those long stretches. Because Sean said it before, he doesn't want that mongoloid fireman. He wants the, the person to be thinking. So from there, the next thing is uh, like getting a simple cheap range finder. So when we're going out and we're kind of working on that stretch, you know, going out in the first do and you're using a range finder to get how many feet away, because I think a lot of times people get confused, especially if they're pulling off the rear versus pulling a cross lay, what that 200 feet looks like or what that 100 feet looks like to the front door. And it's just a great tool that we utilize because it helps guys get that visual cue. So they're good at starting to like look at a building and be like, okay, we're uh, 50 feet away or 100 feet away, or even the measurements of the front of our houses. So if we pull a building on a half past, we know in in Fairview that's going to be about 50 feet. So just a, you know, like a, that's a quick tip that I use to help kind of beat that into the guy's head, so to speak, on how to do that stretch and then actually going out and applying it and, and stretching on the street. Yeah, for sure. And hey, and hey. go ahead, Sean. Sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. Yeah. So to, just to piggyback off Rob's point, my friend who's a non iPhone phone user, so he's not listening. So I could take credit for it. Uh, created a great little prop using <clears throat> just an old cord reel, three different color hose, uh, three different color sections of rope. You have 150 foot of one color, 100 foot of another color, 50 foot of another color. Gets you your your four lengths. The exact same thing. You clip it to the rig. You can walk it in, and then you don't, you know, you're not stretching into businesses. You take it to measure standpipes. You see how it's the same thing with Rob was just piggy, but just another prop. And and I can actually share it with you, and you guys can put it up if you want to see what it looks like. I built one, nice and simple. Clip it to your, to each of your um, <clears throat> outlets on your rig, and you can walk it. And see where you see how far you'll get with. 400 foot yeah for for sure sean i was gonna say the same thing i mean you go in for an alarm investigation if you gotta walk up or you gotta go an apartment or apartment building or even for setbacks i mean if you have a 200 foot rope bag in your truck you throw it over your shoulder as you're walking up just for a standard investigation and you nod it off every 50 feet right at the end of the day you got 200 feet and you can on a simple alarm activation or uh you know a smoke from cooking call you can you can determine what your stretch would be just on that. So great tools. Um, I do want to get back to what Mickey was talking about though, man. Mickey hit on uh, two really big nuggets there that I think need to be explored a little bit further. Uh, Mick, you talked about working your way to the fire and then working your way back. I don't know any fire academy that, I mean, most of the fire academies I, I see for basic firefighting 101 is they teach these kids from, from, the, from the point of entry you search in and, and through. And never do we, until they get to the firehouse and they get to fires, do they understand that they need to get to the fire room and work their way out. The importance of locating the fire is almost as important or maybe as important as locating victims. Um, can we talk about that topic just a little bit more? Because to for the experienced firefighter, that's commonplace. But we might have a couple guys in here tonight that are that are fresh and, and new or never had this real conversation before about how important it is, one, locating the seat of the fire, right? But two, also being able to get to the area of imminent danger and work your way away from it looking for life. And so can we just, you know, somebody else want to hop in on that conversation? Or Mick, do you want to take that a little bit further? Because I think that needs a, a little bit more of a conversation. Yeah, um, it's, it's, we could talk about estimating the stretch, drill on it, practice with it. 
but you can't ultimately understand how how true that stretch is until you find the seat of the fire. And um, like you said, they teach in the academy. You open the door and you start your search from there, from that point of entry, and you're searching for victims. And no one's really understanding the concept that your first new truck, not necessarily truck, but the first guy in without the line in his hand has to find that fire. Amen. Because then we can dictate from that point where we bring that line. Then we can take all the practices we used, draining and drilling with estimating the stretch and putting it into an application of actually putting water on the fire. We all know water on the fire saves the most lives. So that first new truck, by getting water quickly on the fire by identifying the fire will save more lives than estimating that stretch and then searching for the fire. You know, I remember growing up and watching fires, going to fires um, years ago and yeah. not understanding, well, un thinking about it afterwards being like, I don't understand why we're crawling around in a building on fire with a charged hose line looking for the fire. But that's what we did. And that's just what you, you don't understand that you don't necessarily have to pull up with a, with a rear mount or a tower ladder to go find the fire. It could be anyone on scene, find that fire, come out, grab the engine and say, hey, down the hallway, two rooms on the left. So important. But now let's fast forward that to the floor above. We don't talk about the floor above a lot because a lot of people say, that's a big city thing. We don't go to the floor above. What happens at three in the morning when you pull up and there's people inside the building? So you do have to make that move to quote unquote, go on the floor above. But understanding what the floor above truly means and your duties are will make that a little bit easier. So the floor above search starts the second you pass that threshold of the IDLH area, right? So when you're going up the interior stairs and you have to put your face piece on, that's when your search starts for the second dude truck or the guy who just showed up in his personal vehicle and someone's saying, my kids are trapped upstairs. So you essentially are going to the floor above, but you're just doing your job as a human being, as a firefighter. And that's what we do. But Having the understanding that the fire floor truck or the fire floor firefighter without the nozzle has a completely different role to play than the guys going above looking for those searching. Because yes, we search in the truck, but the searching dictates different areas from where you enter the point of the building. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when we talk, God, I, I mean, when, when, you, when we talk about search, it always resonates with, I, I think most people is we're talking about for life. And there's so many other things that we need to be searching for. Um, and so, you know, that conversation, you know, kind of flipping the script a little bit and having that conversation is important, uh, especially for, um, you know, the, uh, the younger inexperienced or lack of experience, if you will, um, because of just where they are or where they run or what have you. But, you know, those are important conversations to be having and to educate, um, one another. The other thing you hit on too, um, is uh well okay so let's let's talk about this too then um larry i'm going to throw it back to you for a second here bud uh we talked about uh mickey hit on building construction a little bit and you know mickey a lot of times is talking about apartments because that's his first do right he's he, and so on but you know we're looking at you know understanding uh in locating fire if you have a, a one and a half story cape cod that's you know 30 by 40 um, you know, chances are that fire is going to be quickly located, right? And that can, and you could basically hit that fire with your stream, right? And you don't have to search deep into to get to that seat of the fire, right? We can open up basically at the front door and work our way to the seat because in a small building like that, we have the ability to do so, right? The importance of uh, knowing your buildings, getting out, walking, understanding. Mickey talked about, um, you know, knowing the layout, knowing how to work either from the seat to the rear or seat to the front, 
Um, how important is building construction in your consideration for line, uh, you know, size of your line, how you stretch, um, and so on? Well, I'll take your first part second and your second part first. Do it. And what Mickey was talking about is extremely valid. But one thing that we also talk about is you talk about the academies teaching certain things. What the academies teach now is that you're ventilating for fire control. We have forgotten that sometimes, based upon building construction, you're ventilating for life just as much as you are for fire. And so whether you take that window, which can't be closed, or whether you ventilate and you open the roof, you take a, a stairwell bulkhead door, there's certain things that you have to understand what the purpose of the ventilation is. Is it a top floor fire? Is it a floor below fire? Is it a single family dwelling, you know, a two-story garden? All of these things factor in. And so to say that you're going to put a hole in the roof every time and you're going to push the ceiling because it's a top floor, well, that's great. But sometimes we need to ventilate for life safety as well. I mean, if, if, if fire control is taking a while, line's not in place, engine's delayed, a lot of times you can ventilate the space and really improve the survival profile of a civilian inside and consequently a truck with no water you can increase the probability of them being successful, but also them being safe. So I think what you look at is you have to know your building construction, understand that there's a difference between ventilating for fire and ventilating for life. And oftentimes those are just kind of muddled together to where the academy says, hey, start a fan, pick your exit point, raise the atmospheric pressure, blow it out there, or we're going to put a hole in the roof. They don't go into the dynamics of why we're ventilating. And again, sometimes you're doing it for life safety or, or for, for victims, uh, just as much as you are for trying to control the fire. And, and those are hand in hand. And they're driven by building construction because a Queen Anne versus a Cape Cod versus a two-story garden or a three-story center hallway, the construction of the various parts of the country, uh, what the tendencies are, what the popularity is, those all drive it. I mean, we all know balloon construction. If there's a fire in the basement, second line goes to the attic because it's going to beat you there. You know, you go to some parts of the country, knee walls are a huge issue. And you have to be able to understand you've got to open those knee walls. Sure. That's not a common thing. That's not very common at all in our part of the area. Uh, and so we run into those things that are very, very construction you know, driven. Is everything that you're in wood frame? Is everything, you know, lightweight wood trust or is it true dimensional, you know, rafters and joists? All of these things factor in. You need to know your neighborhoods based upon the era they were built. You know, if you roll into a neighborhood here that was built in the 70s, you can camp out. You know, it's not going to fall down. But realistically, building construction, you know, they're going to have vertical fire stop. You roll into a new neighborhood, it's glue laminates, it's everything else. And you understand that the vertical fire stopping is going to fail sooner. It's going to get above you sooner and that your burn time and your ability to do your job. All of those things factor into engine company operations and the truck for both ventilation and search. Beautiful. Sean, hit on that. Yeah, yeah, they covered it. I mean, and and. It, it all, all of what they're saying, it all plays back to what Mickey was mentioning earlier and what, what Larry's mentioned earlier about getting out and knowing everything. Every district, at least in my city, for the most part, you know, I have on one side, I have your regular, your, your 1,200 square foot homes. On the other side, I have your three, 4,000 square foot homes. And then I have your Main Street USA literally right around the corner and businesses and commercials. So you have to know how everything's going to, everything's going to play out and, most of our older homes are balloon frame construction, so we're used to that. It's easy. It's 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 when we get into those new new areas that the you know things go south and, and we start to have problems, partially because of the people get so scared of the lightweight construction 
and with the unknowns, right? We don't know how, you know, the whole receipt of the alarm, how long was it before we got there? Generally, we're pretty quick, obviously, with the way we were, the luxury of having a fully staffed um, fire department. So we're, you know, two, three minutes, we're on scene, but was it 15 minutes for the call? So that's where understanding building construction, understanding what, how much time you actually have in these places um, <clears throat> and what you're dealing with in certain neighborhoods is is huge and it's, and it's key and how, how long they're going to last. Like, we, one of our most famous pictures, I'm sure you've all seen it over the course of two years, several years back, we had a double fatal and uh knee wall burnt through, burnt the hose line on the second floor. Two guys ended up bailing out of the window and it ended up, you know, cover of either firehouse or fire engineering magazine. And it was, you know, all because somebody didn't realize that there was knee wall space there, which because we didn't know the neighborhood, we didn't know, not the neighborhood, we didn't know that particular type of house. So you have to know your districts. You have to know what you're dealing with, uh, especially if you're assigned to the same spot all the time. You know, that's my, I work at the same firehouse, except if I'm happen to be on overtime, you, I need to know what I'm dealing with and what I'm sending my guys into. All right. Sorry. My phone locked up on me, man. That was weird. Okay. Uh, you guys can hear me, right? I'm back. Okay. Um, no, good. Very good points. I mean, building construction is super important and so on. And you guys, you know, it's, it's the little things like where the, I think the conversation too, that's, you know, I love getting specific because when we do, that's typically where the knowledge and the, the nuggets start to flow. Um, you know, you guys have been hitting on, uh, construction, which is super important, right? Uh, knee walls, you know, the, the conversation Larry mentioned balloon frame starts in the basement you know, if we got a below grade fire, you know, it's traveling those walls and it's going right up to the top. And so, you know, placement of our lines, the importance of opening up, we've talked about search. We've started talking about ventilation, right? So we already hopped over the engine and you uh, rightfully so you guys are all truck guys for the most part. So I get that. And we're going to talk, you know, about supporting that line. So, you know, we talked about searching for victims. We talked about searching for fire and the, and the methodology behind that uh, and the importance of that. We've gotten on uh, some ventilation talk now, opening up and so on, venting for fire, venting for life. What other fire ground to, to be able to get that line? And, and Larry, you, you, broke, you brokered the conversation here about ventilation with for life and for fire. Um, experience matters when we're doing operations like that. You know, a lot of times the line does get hung up. A lot of times the line is not stretched as quickly as you would like it to be. A lot of times we arrive and things are going to shit real quick and we're, we're, we're pushing, you know, and you can hear that panic sometimes on the radio in the guy's voice where he's asking where that line is, you know, where's that line, where's that line, you know, and so on. And so, and that speeds up the tempo on the fire ground. And then, and then typically things, uh, they go either way. It can go sideways or it can, it can, uh, we can get in there in the nick of time and, and knock it back. But, you know, all of that conversation leads to the importance of the coordination between, you know, the engine and the truck. But when we're venting, experience does matter, right? I don't think we talk about ventilation enough, um, in the fire service. I know Nick Papa does a nice presentation on tactically venting, uh, and things like that. Um, you know, and so on, but I don't think there's enough conversation just on the simp, you know, the, what we all consider or maybe we think of as simplistic ventilation, right? We break glass, we cut a hole, but we oftentimes that's to aid in pushing the line in, releasing the heat gases and smoke, get them up out of our face so that that line can get pushed in. But when we start talking about 
tactically venting for life when we don't have a line stretched yet. You want to talk about the importance of that a little bit, the discipline of that? Yeah, if that was meant for me, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's one of those things where if you know that you have a high probability of a victim trap in, in any space, if the line's delayed, you've got a water supply issue, if you've got any kind of variable that's thrown at you, we still have to be able to improve the atmosphere and improve the environment for that person. That's why we go to work every day. We're not going to work to put on a T-shirt and say, oh, we're all a bunch of badass. We're going to work to provide a service. And what we have to do for those citizens when they're having the worst day of their life, we have to understand that if we can't put the fire out and solve the problem or begin to solve it, as you said, we need to at least be able to improve that environment. You know, if we can get in the window through VES, and I know that's the hot topic, uh, if you can get in the window through VES, if you can get in there through interior stairs, which is a better option, if you can isolate that environment and then make that environment better until the line can be put in place or until you can get them out, then obviously you want to ventilate that space to increase that. I mean, you hear all the hero stories where these great outstanding firemen sacrifice their air pack for a victim because they're in a bad spot. Well, not to say those guys didn't do an outstanding job, but for that to occur, something else didn't occur as planned. And we just have to be honest with ourselves. Was the line delayed? Did that fireman stumble upon somebody and he's doing an outstanding job and that person was in respiratory distress? We need to understand that as you mentioned, tactical ventilation is great, but too many times we forget why we're ventilating. We're not doing it for the benefit of the engine. Yes, that's a sideline benefit, but we need to make sure that if the line's delayed, that if we've got to ventilate a top floor window, that we're not afraid to VES it. We're not afraid to take that window. We just have to understand the ramifications if the fire does extend rapidly or unexpectedly, that we have to understand that the impacts we have from ventilating can have an irreversible effect. You can't replace that window pane in 30 seconds. You can't cover that roof in 30 seconds. We've all seen truck companies that have cut a hole in the wrong side of the ridge road. They cut it on the windward side instead of the leeward side, and then they wonder why things went bad on the inside. And so we, we're always, we have to be able to acknowledge that as a fire service, especially those tasked with ventilation, that our whole purpose is not to just have fire come out of the hole, is that if there's a priority, we have to lend itself towards ventilating the space to improve survivability. No, good points. Very good points. And and what what I think of when you when you talk like that, and I want to shoot this over to Mickey then, is communication and how important communication is, right? A lot of times the line does get delayed. And, and with a delay in the line, that needs to be said. Um, you know, we have too often, I know where Mickey comes from, everybody's got their assignment and everybody's expected to do their job. Uh, and so, uh, Larry, just mute out, bro. You got a lot of background. But, and Mickey, I want to throw this over to you with uh, the communication aspect and how important it is to communicate your message. And I know with you and I know um, how you think and, and tactically how you think um, and so on and, and the importance of making sure our people are doing their jobs. Um, you have very disciplined departments that uh, are very task specific per the, per the writing assignment. And then we have, you know, uh, companies that are pretty loose and those jobs are decided on the way to the fire if you will. And so I'd love for you to talk about the importance of communication, whether it's between the engine and truck from the, the boss to the crew, wherever you want to go with that. But let's open up a conversation about um, communication. Okay. So communication on the fire ground. So with this job, like everything in life, we're constantly communicating at the kitchen table, picking up the meal, breaking balls around the firehouse, whatever it is, we're constantly communicating. But on the fire ground, there's only three ways to communicate. 
and that's visual, and that's physical, and that's audio. So when you break those down on the fire ground, visually means eye-to-eye -eye contact, and that's it. If you see your brother and you identify him, you, you don't have company integrity. It's all about company integrity, and company integrity comes from communication. So if he acknowledges you and you acknowledge him, that's communication, that's company integrity. Okay, so physically, again, same thing. Company integrity comes from, yeah, physically grabbing the guy by his shoulder, say, come with me, brother. Also meaning, if you're in the engine company and you're stretching the line, you are communicating by holding that line. You don't necessarily have to be talking to each other, but you had that company integrity, and that's so key. As an officer, which I'm not, but if you are an officer, um, knowing that your members are on that line is a good feeling. If the line's moving, you know you have company integrity. That line's getting in position because your firefighters are doing their job. Um, company integrity, again, communicating without speaking. In the truck side, now we have search ropes, which we all know they're kind of bullshit when you really talk and break it down. They don't really work well. They do have their purpose, but you have to train with them diligently, and people don't. Um, but when they do work, and the search is progressing in a positive way, and the company's advancing through a large warehouse or wherever it is you're searching, that officer knows he has company integrity because you're communicating by touching that rope, by moving forward, okay? Now let's talk about audio. For some reason, well, I know the reasons, but we have really bad transmissions on the fire ground a lot of times. Not always, but when you introduce stress into the fire ground, we tend to think we communicate better than we truly do. Because when you go back and listen a lot of times, a lot of times you're like, wow, I thought I was really calm and I wasn't. Um, sometimes it goes the other way, but most times it goes down that road of saying, I thought I was doing better than I was communicating. And that's simply just understanding that your lower mind speaks with logic, reason, and facts. And when you're operating under instinct, you don't really have time to communicate. So you really can't, and that's okay. You shouldn't want to communicate on the fire ground. You shouldn't have to communicate unless you're checking on your brother with that mouth to mouth. And that's what I'm going to touch on is that when you're operating on the fire floor and you're doing a search with your company, you have to be communicating through your mask, not on the radio, but making sure your officer's okay. Just because he's the officer, you could say, hey, hey, Sean, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right, brother, and communicate. That's very key. But keep those communications from person to person, not on the radio. The radio is for critical messages, starting a line, jumpers, maydays, right? So mayday on the fire ground is probably the only time where you actually have a conversation on the fire ground. You're conversating with the incident command. A mayday given that's not acknowledged by the command is just a statement, right? So we don't speak in statements, we speak in conversation when giving a mayday. So a couple things there, um, but the main thing is company integrity and company integrity and communication doesn't necessarily have to be communicating over the radio. It's understanding that you trust the brothers to get the job done and you know by the job getting done that they're communicating back to you. Good points. I mean, a lot of good points. Sean, I want you to piggyback on that, obviously, as a boss. Um, and I, I do want to keep chatting about this topic because I, I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, you know, from, from a boss position that you're in, I mean, you have expectations for your crew, their operations, tactically speaking. And uh, what do you want to hear from them? What do you not want to hear from them? Yeah, Mickey made some really good points there. And the number one key regarding communication is the discipline part of it. And <clears throat> my guys, we generally, you know, again, speaking of generalizations, re re residential, typical house fire, we're splitting into teams. I have a luxury of having four-man crew. 
me and the person riding behind me, we work together. My uh, chauffeur and the guy behind him, they're my second team. I don't need – I know because of all the conversations that we had, the expectations that have been laid out, I pretty much know what they're doing. They're either getting separate orders from the chief or they're getting above wherever we are to start doing a search, do it, recon, do it, ventilation, whatever it may be. I don't need them to tell me about it unless something's different. And that's that was a hard thing because – for years and years, we only had one or two radios, one radio per apparatus. Now everybody carries one, which they should, but it doesn't mean you have to talk on it. Just to, to piggyback, just exactly what Mickey said. Listen, most of what we do, if you listen to any fireground, so much communication could be done verbally through the, hey, bro, good, search is clear, great. When I'm all done, I'll let the, I'll let the uh, operations chief know, and I'll let the commander know. We have to be disciplined in all the communications that we do. Our jobs are getting younger and younger and younger. And I don't think that message is getting played out. I, I, I ask, I don't expect to hear my guys on the radio ever unless something's going wrong. But that's good. I mean, that's, that's what it should be. Right. I look at it this yeah, way. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the conversation that needs to be had because I, I can assure you that the majority of the people um, that are listening and tune in and follow you guys on social and so on, don't come from, strong urban departments that are disciplined in writing assignments and disciplined enough to know, um, you know, that the guy sitting behind him uh, is, is tasked to do X, Y, and Z without being told to um, and so on. And so this is one of those disconnects that we have in this fire service with the, how it varies between departments and cities and districts and, and towns. Um, and so communications super important. I want to circle back around to, the conversation of that initial push and the importance we talked about the line getting held up. And if the line gets held up, you know, that's a critical piece of information, especially Larry, you were talking about if we're already inside searching for a fire, searching for victims, the lines getting held up, conditions are starting to deteriorate. We got to start making some tactical decisions. How important is that communication from that engine company? It has to, I mean, the incident commander, somebody has to be able to relay and say, look, the line's delayed, water supply is an issue, you're in on tank water, which is very common in our region. First thing company will go in on tank water, and you've got 500 to 750 gallons, and if that amount is being depleted, if you're down to half a tank, this region's gotten very, very good at saying, hey, look, we're down to half a tank. The people start asking, hey, let's everybody move back until we get a water supply. But in the city of Houston, the companies are typically on top of each other. And so a lot of times that doesn't happen unless there's that audible. Unless there's that variable, like people talk about, that undoubtedly arise on the fire. And when that happens, we've got to be able to communicate. The truck can't be in there doing what they do. They can't be on the roof if they know, or rather, if they don't know that the engine is delayed. We've got a water supply. We've got a pump fill. Whatever the issue is. And all it can be is a simple communication on the radio. Click of the mic. Hey, engine 68, I'm down to half a tank. That gives everybody situational awareness. It lets the guys that are on the top floor, somebody doing VES, knowing that the line's not coming. And that can factor into their, and I hate to use the buzzword, that can factor into their risk-benefit analysis. I know it's a corporate world you know, way of looking at it. But it can factor into how much risk they're willing to take, knowing that if things go south, once they go up that ladder and through that window, that that line is going to be there. Versus if they know that line's pushing in, then they know that they've got a window where they can do what they need to do and then bounce out, and then things go bad, and then coming. It's a click of the mic. It's an acknowledgement. It's situational awareness. And we have to be able to communicate that. And we spend an inordinate amount of money on radio. Every portable radio that 
everybody carries is five, six thousand dollars. We have a tendency to communicate stupid stuff instead of important stuff. Everybody with a radio, and I've complained about this for 20 years, thinks that what they have to say is the most important. We pride ourselves wrongly on communicating knickknacky stuff instead of important stuff. As Mickey said, you're going to communicate a mayday? Absolutely. But that channel has to be free of stupid crap in order for that mayday to be able to be communicated. It has to be free of the stupid crap for the engine to say, hey, look, I'm out of water. I had a pump failure, whatever, for the chief to call the truck or everybody operating and say, hey, look, we've got a water supply issue, what have you. And we need to refocus and, and look at how long we take up a radio channel because communications there matters big time. And it's a firefighter safety issue. It's a victim uh, safety issue. It, it, it all factors into what – look at every NIOSH line of duty death report. Every one of them cites two things, communications issues and a lack of a structure or at least some problem with an incident command. And so when you look at those two things, we can help ourselves. We invest a lot of money. We just have to apply. Yeah, I, I think we got to have a conversation. I mean, we don't even, yeah. we don't really talk about it. I mean, I, I know in, in my department, the communication is, it's not even something that's trained on, you know? Um, and I, I think that that's, that matters. And I, I think, um, you know, instilling that into, especially in a culture of today where everybody's asking questions and everybody needs direction, if you will. Um, you know, if we have a culture in our firehouse that that has allowed for that, then don't expect a well-oiled operation on the fire ground if your people are always constantly looking for, um, you know, uh, or to be told uh, what to do and how to act. I mean, that, that's just, you know, that's part of the problem. Well, yeah, I, Jeremy. You, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Larry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Sean. So, yeah, you know, just what you said, it, it, th that's where your SOPs come in. And I'm not just beating up on firemen when I say about the radio discipline. It starts with me. It starts with the officers. If we're doing our job and we're relaying that information to the chiefs that are standing in the street or sitting in their cars or whoever your department does it, it's it's by if we hit those benchmarks and let them know, not to be throwing key terms out, but let them know what's going on, they're going to be more comfortable. And that's going to stop them from radio and truck seven. What's your update? What do you got going on? And then two minutes later, asking me again, well, I'm three feet further than I was, Chief. If we keep them apprised of things and let them know what's going on from the outside, that is going to help make everybody's lives easier. It's going to keep people off the radio. Officers are more guilty than anybody of talking too much on the radio. They're the most fire, especially young firefighters, are, are, are afraid to. You know, they're, they're reserved just for calling that mayday or doing whatever. But the officers have to be disciplined too. And I'm, I am one. And so I'm beating us up too. We, we, you know, sometimes we talk just for hearing our own voice too. It sounds cool when we get to play it back on the radio, you know what I mean? So. I get it. No, that's good. Good point, Sean. Mickey, um, you came off mute. You got something you want to share? Yeah. It's just to tie a couple of things together. Um, yeah. Great points, Sean and Larry. Um, as Sean was saying about the communication and discipline, um, as a firefighter and not an officer, you should only be listening and only communicating when you can't perform your job. When your task at hand is delayed or you can't do it, that's when you have to let your officer understand what's going on so he can now adapt to what the situations are going to lie because you can't get to that back bedroom because you can't get to the rear because of a tough gate. He is, his mindset searching that apartment is, okay, I'm going to have to get that back bedroom because my OB is not going to make it. So these are things that when you can't get things happening, you make that transmission. Kind of to tie everything we spoke about 
together as far as communication. Um, Larry has some great points as far as venting for life. I want to talk a little bit about venting for fire and communication. We all know that fire when it's out the windows and the chief's screaming on the radio, what's going on in there? And you're saying, chief, we're looking for it. And he goes, well, if you can't find it, I'm pulling you out. And that happens a lot. So you say, chief, give me 30, and he's going to give you five. So that being said, the word flow path, okay? Flow path in the fire academies today have set firefighters up for failure by scaring them. Scaring them, understanding the flow path is a bad thing. When in reality, the flow path is a disruption in a tactical movement, meaning that fires out the windows, the chief's giving you 30, you're taking 10, whatever it may be, you can't find the fire. Well, now the truck can communicate with the engine and say, brother, we got a charge hose line right here. I'm gonna take a window adjacent or behind this. We're gonna draw that fire to us. We are going to dictate that fire. The fire should never dictate our actions, right? So many times on the fire ground, it's out the windows, you can't find it. The fire is dictating for us to pull that line out and put it through the window, right? It happens all the time across the nation. We dictate the fire, never let the fire dictate us. Again, so now we're gonna bait the fire to us. We're gonna draw the enemy to us. What's the fire starving? Oxygen. Take that window adjacent or behind us, and that's a strictly a fire officer move, not a firefighter move. That's got to be communicated with everyone operating. But now the fire will start to burn through that door down the hallway and say, shit, there's that fire. We were looking all over for it. Here it comes. It's coming to us now. It's going to come down the hallway, and we're going to go knock it down and put it to sleep. Right? So that's communicating on all levels, from engine the truck operating together, the chief outside, and now using ventilation to tie it all together with the word flow path and the tactical movement drawing that fire to us. I'm so glad you said that, Mickey, because we, we overlook ventilation as, you know, how important it is. You know, you could argue, and, and again, being biased here a little bit, you could argue second only to a properly placed hose line. It's the one, the most important thing we do on the fire ground. And venting for fire control, like you just said, is kind of becoming a, a lost art. Uh, I'm so glad you said that. You, you made a lot of points that I was, that were running through my brain. Well, we, <laughs> go ahead, Larry. You know, it, it, but this circles back to the original point of, of tonight's topic, is that if you want that line to push in, if you want to have the atmosphere at least be somewhat tenable for the guys to be able to get in there, control your flow path, and I agree with Mickey 100%, is that, you know, we're scaring the hell out of these new kids in the academy by saying, oh, flow path is going to kill you. But if you understand how it works, you can limit its effects, you can avoid it. But at the same time, too, to go back to the point of tonight, if the truck's ventilating, whether it's through, you know, horizontal, whether they're putting a hole in the roof, whether it's an attic fire, whether they're pushing the ceiling for a top floor fire in a two story single family dwelling, as long as everything is being coordinated, too many times we've all said it. And, and I think Mickey touched on, it, you know, where the chief says, hey, I'm giving you, you know, 30 and you want five. But we've all walked outside the front door of a single family dwelling, dropped the nozzle and thought that we were heroes until you turn around and look at it and realize that you only put out what you saw. In that at the end of the day, it's running a void space. It's above you. And it's always been doing something that you thought you had a handle on. That's where that efficient communications comes in. That's where a loss of water, a delay in the line, all of that comes into play. But to the coordinated fire attack, if you improve the atmosphere inside, the engine's going to push in faster. They're going to find the seat of the fire faster. And the survivability profile, to use that corporate buzzword, is going to be improved or at least maintained. 
The truck's going to accomplish what they need to do. Searches are going to be completed. And a, a lot of people think that truck or, or that engine companies go by bodies or they go by people look, because that, that's a truck guy. I don't know an engine guy yet that rides on an engine that's going to bypass a person just to stretch a hose line inside of a burning building. And so when you look at it, the trucks and the rescue companies and the special service, the squads, all the rest of those guys, they get the credit for all the saves. But realistically, the engines are the ones that make them viable. It's kind of like the whole EMTs make paramedics look good because they keep them viable until they get there. Uh, and so realistically, we have to have engine and truck work because let's face it, if an engine is doing on an aggressive fire, if they're in there and they're really pushing the line, they're going to take a beating until the truck gets there. Conversely, the truck is going to be way, way overextended trying to do their job if there's not an engine there. And so it's a coordinated ballet that has to be timed, that has to be communicated with the least amount of verbal communication is needed. That comes through drilling, that comes from knowing building construction, having pre-arrival assignments, knowing that this company is going to do X, Y, and Z, this one's going to do A, B, and C. And I don't mean to get long-winded, but, well, Jeremy, you know I will. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, listen, brother, keep going. It, it, it's one of those things where the engine and the truck, to make this work the way it did back in the 50s and the 60s and since fire began burning, we need to quit trying to overthink this and repackage it. We need to get back to the days of you push in with the wind to your back. You don't worry about burned or unburned. You know, the new science is saying you don't ventilate a fire space until you have water on the fire. Well, that doesn't help the firemen that are pushing in. That doesn't help the victims trapped. We have to understand that everything is done in coordination. You know, we've all in a, been, a, been in a position, whether in our volunteer departments, our side jobs, or our career departments, where you were begging for a truck to get there to put a hole in or do some ventilation that allowed you some relief to push in. Conversely, there's been times where all of us have probably experienced where you were doing a search going, where the hell is the engine? Because you wanted something just to cool off the atmosphere. So if we can time that, if we can drill it, if we can know our building construction, know the propensity for what's going to happen based upon a Queen Anne or a single family dwelling, we can make everything better. But too many times we scare the hell out of these rookies and nobody wants to have autonomous thinking to, to know that, okay, I've got to do this, not just because of my situation, but for the coordinated attack. I love it, man. A, a lot of a lot of good points right there. I will say this, just to circle back, Mick. I, <laughs> Larry, I, Larry, very, very well said, uh, all of it, and it, and it supports. You know, you, the three of you guys really are supporting one another tonight, and and it's just nice how you guys play off of each other. I, I love it because it's it's really get, sending that message home. But Mickey, talk baiting the fire is just amazing. I've heard you talk about it before. I've never heard anybody really talk about it that way. Um, and I just think that that message really paints a very different picture than what most people think we need to be doing. Um, it's kind of a different mindset. Um, maybe, un, you know, unintentionally we do it, but putting it to words like that just paints a real awesome picture. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Um, so they teach you how to fight fire in the fire academy, but what they're not actually portraying to the young firefighters coming on the job that essentially we're attempting to control an energy. And by controlling an energy, energy means that, I still want to say it again, is that you have to dictate the fire. You never let the fire dictate your actions. Yes, yeah. when the fire's out a certain window or through the roof, certain construction, that all plays a role. But ultimately, it's, it's a cat and, cat and mouse game, right? So every event has a response equals an outcome on the fire. So if we slow that down and think about it again, every event is the fire, right? And then your response to it will equal that outcome. And that outcome 
is differentiated through your mindset when you pull up there. And that's why looking at a building, slowing down, not running into a fire. Now, you know, the Navy SEALs say it best, don't run to your death. Well, if the Navy SEALs aren't running into battle, why are firefighters running into battle? That's a whole different debate I don't want to get into. But that will slow you down. That will find your ultimate zen efficiency on the fire floor. And that's for another conversation as well. But these are all things that start to play into um, the tactical sense versus the mindset and understanding where you fit in on the fire ground, which is a huge, huge thing that's lost. They don't necessarily teach you in the fire academy today where you fit in. They teach you the tasks, but understanding where you fit in will make a great firefighter, not a good firefighter. A great firefighter will understand that, okay, I might have the roof tonight in my department, whatever. I got to get to that roof. Nothing should deter you from getting the roof. I get that. But if you walk past a coupling stuck on a tire as you're stretching, you stop and move that coupling. You understand where you're fitting in on the fire ground, okay? You don't walk past that coupling because, hey, that's an engine guy's job. I'm in the truck tonight. I'm going to the roof. I have to get there. All these little things will, in the end, will communicate. That's the word tonight. It's right. Communication we're talking about. That communicates to the ultimate goal in the end. So, um, I could go on for hours, Jeremy. You know. Oh, I, I, yeah, but I, but, I, I love it. I love it. So, but, yeah, go ahead. No, go. I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead. No, so what I what I'd like to do now, we're about an hour in, and um, I figure we go for like 90 minutes tonight. We got about probably 30 left before you know we all start falling asleep on each other here. But I do want to remind everybody here, it is being recorded. But I do want to ask if there's any questions from the gallery. I know a lot of people down in that gallery, and I know there's a lot of smart brothers down there that have the, probably a lot that they can add to this conversation. And so please don't hesitate. Raise your hand. We'll bring you up. I'd love for to get some other people a part of the conversation with this panel um, just because the, the conversation can really take a great turn and, and uh, some really good nuggets come out of it. Um, Sean, while we're waiting to see if anybody wants to hop up, um, you said you had some notes, brother. I'd love to know um, what we didn't hit on yet. Where do we want to head? You got something for me? Well, Actually, I want to. We keep using the circle back, but no, keep uh, yes, that's fine, no, man. It's it, conversation. It, 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 it all what what Mickey just said again, again. Yeah, I don't know where that accent is. Is getting, that that's like a buffalo te- thing or te- something? Te- but yeah, I guess so. Oh, right. Temp- tempo is so huge because we all have the you know if you could read this, your first do blah blah blah. When we're on the streets, we want to get there and we're rush rush rush. But then when we actually get there, that's when you got to slow down. Just to piggyback again off of Mickey's point there, that's where the tempo comes in so big. You can do what you need to do to get there, but then you got to use your brain, which which if we're really going back now to what you want to talk about while we wait for someone to jump up, yeah. it all starts from from you know literally the, the call. You hit the street, you get on the scene. The best thing the first engine can do, in my opinion, is to leave us some room. Too often, you know, at least in my city, we don't have chauffeurs. We have drivers. You know, I have a driver driving this week, another person driving that week, next person. So too often they get wrapped up and I'm driving down the street. I'm going, I'm going, you know, Mach 6 until I see the, see the address and then I lock them up. And now I'm not leaving room for the truck to get in and get a good spot. I'm not leaving room. I'm not setting up myself for a good stretch. So all of that, you know, we save our time in a firehouse getting turned out, getting on the rig and get going. Once you get to the scene, especially on my truck, I tell my guys, hey, slow down as we approach the scene. We get one chance to spot this big sucker. You know, I have a huge ladder tower. That thing, once it's in position and lines are stretched around it, it's tough to move. So the, the simplest way to start to set us up for success is to start where we position our rigs. We, you know, we don't want to be parking, just pull up and park and hit the brake and go. 
you know, I often, I tell the engine that rides with me, you can give me two houses, beautiful. Cause I may need that. We, we do one, two, three, four here. I may need that two side driveway or two side alleyway. That's where I may need to spot my rig. And so that's the, that's the biggest. It all starts with the discipline of the chauffeurs of the drivers to get these rigs in the right position to start to start a success right from the rig. I love that. And and part of that conversation is though, is having that engine chauffeur, or in that case driver, right. Or the truck driver to know what's expected of the other company. Right. So, you know, if you're the engine chauffeur or driver, you got to know what that first and second due truck looks like coming into that box. Right. So that you know how to set up for their success. You know, um, too often that engine takes, you know, if the engines first, we got more engines than trucks in every city. And so if that's the case, you know, typically your engines making the block first and the way they stretch the way that, you know, whether they lay in, they're going in on tank, whatever it is, you know, if they're, if they're running, you know, uh, Sean, you guys run pre-connects, I think you said. So if you know, uh, that you have a 200 foot pre-connect and they're coming off the, you know, the cross lay, if you will, positioning's important, right? Um, you know, but if they pull too far past, then, you know, the guys are uncomfortable and out of position, if you will. But then if they stay too close to maximize the stretch off the cross lay, you know, and make it easier for themselves, then they're putting their block in the truck out of positioning. So you're a hundred percent correct on all of that. And, and what it really comes down to is understanding just as important as knowing your apparatus is what's coming in next, what, you know, the next due company and what their roles and functions are. And, and where they're coming from. Correct. So what, what direction are they approaching? The most disciplined people, the best officers, the best drivers or chauffeurs are the ones that will give up. You know what? I'm going to go around the block. I'm going to come in from the other side. Yeah, I may not get that second line. I may end up being relegated to the third, but I did the right thing for the scene. You know, and the problem lies is if you don't, nobody gets enough fires. You know, good firefighters want to go to fire every day. They want to go to two fires a day. So when you get when that tone drops, sometimes our the adrenaline takes over and it gets our brain thinking, I just got to get there. I just got to get packed up. I want to get in there. I want to get I want to get into shit. And instead of instead of setting a scene up for success by by staying again, staying disciplined, we we can add discipline to the word of the day tonight too. communication, discipline, tempo. But the these guys, you know, the smartest people are the ones that think, you know, where your companies are coming from. You can't always right? They may be out for the meal. They may be out getting coffee. They may be out on a drill. But for the most part, where are they coming? So I don't send three engines down the street from the same the same main road down a secondary road. Now they're screwed if we have a dead hydrant. You know, it's all part of the discipline it takes to be a good firefighter, to be a good fire officer, to be a good chauffeur. And Mickey, you hit on that before. I mean, it's the mission, right? I mean, you, to be a to be a good fireman, to be a great fireman, right? It's it's important to understand the mission and not your individual task. Yeah, and it's as simple as like when you guys are prepping the meal, you walk into the kitchen. If the guy's cutting onions, don't go start cutting onions. Go start cutting peppers. It's understanding the basics, you know, committee work or work night in the firehouse. Guys pushing the broom. Don't grab the broom out of his hand because he's the senior guy. Go get the mop bucket ready. Be one step ahead of the guy. That'll make you a great fireman. All that transforms over from the firehouse to the fire ground. Uh, hey, Jeremy. Yeah, do it, Larry. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy writing down cut onions uh, and, and the peppers comment. Go ahead. Right. Uh, I think Sean said it, and it's a very valid point. You know, we're always concerned about our apparatus positioning. Uh, if you're first in, hey, the engine pulls past, stop short. 
But you can't do that correctly with any margin of success if you don't understand. It's easy when I was driving Ladder 68. Okay, I know that the running route for Engine 82 is going to be most likely this direction. So I'm going to come in this way. But realistically, when you're second due, you have to understand the most likely running route for the first due. So this isn't something that you're just responsible for understanding incidents in your still alarm, as we call them in Houston. Chicago, that's a bigger area, but in Houston, it's a single engine response area. So you have to understand the likelihood, as Sean said, somebody's out getting the meal, somebody's on a drill, somebody's coming off of an, an EMS run or whatnot. We have to understand that everything we do is dictated by where we set up. Sean said he gets one shot to set up a tower ladder. He's 110% right. That's no different for a real mount, a mid-mount, or a tiller because the lines start getting stretched. We have to get out of this parade mentality, and that is the one thing that sets us up for failure. How many times have we all seen multiple alarm fires that are run off of one damn pumper and one damn hydrant? Because we park in a parade, and it's a line of flashy lights and millions of dollars worth of fire trucks that bring no operational benefit to the fire ground. Because as Sean and Mickey both said, we don't slow down to take the extra 60 seconds to come in the Charlie side and own that backside of the building. At 68, those guys take a great amount of pride in sliding in the back door and being where nobody expects them to be. I did, because you want to be relevant on the fire ground. It's about relevancy. It's not about setting the parking brake, hitting the MDT, and saying, we're here. You want to be relevant. And there is a completely different perspective. 100%. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the... The art of uh, the art of chauffeuring is, uh, I mean, that's a whole nother segment times ten to even talk about the mindset and everything else. I mean, I always, I, you know, I was that kid that grew up playing with my. To- I was, I, I played with toys, man, matchboxes, Legos, you name it, and everything was a fire truck. And man, I set up some of the best fire scenes in the in the world. And it, even in the mindset of then was, you know, opposing direction, understanding water supply. I mean, it's as simple as just on the training. You know, we threw out a couple training ideas before about the uh, the the ropes, you know, the colored ropes, or uh, you know, stretching things like that, right? Um, you know, just another training nugget is take a night and talk about chauffeuring at your firehouses. Talk about the importance of it. Talk about what the expectations are from the command staff to the company officer on down, what the expectations are and know your first due. It's just, it's critical, but it's something that's not talked about enough. Yeah. But how many of us have messed up? I, it wasn't, but right before the new year's Eve, uh, this past new year's Eve, we had a fire at a warehouse staff we had smoke coming out of a warehouse and literally, the first thing truck pulled up, the chauffeur comes running up to my car and he goes, hey, you mind moving your car so I can set up the truck? I mean, literally, I was the one that screwed it up. Yeah. It's raining, but he still knew his job well enough and to come up to me and say, hey, can you move your car? I mean, if you don't mind backing the SUV up, it's kind of hard for me to push a position 107 foot early. But he was dead on. And at the end of the day, I said, man, I'm embarrassed. You know, good job for you. And, and it, we have to understand that, that sometimes you have to be able to say that on the fire ground. That truck needs to lay on the air horn and tell the engine to move your ass for 20 Because, as Sean said, you get one shot. And you can either educate, educate, and educate. And I hate to be that guy, but sometimes you got to embarrass to achieve the same accomplishment or uh, the, the same goal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, it certainly happens. Mick, go ahead. You know, we're talking about apparatus placement and being out of the mix or out of the box, right? So-called operating off one engine, one hydrant. And that happens. It happens more often than uh, we'd like to. But... Something, just a quick tip I want to throw out there. Um, I've been working on a post for a while. I just haven't got it out for whatever reason. But it touches on 
arriving later into a fire, right? So you don't always get that, that prime parking at a fire or that good positioning. You may come on the second alarm or mutual aid from a different department you're coming in. You may be the rescue of the squad company responding. With that, when you park your rig a block away, two blocks away, whatever it is, when you're approaching that building, right? And we're going back to that, that running, not necessarily the running, I don't wanna get into running or tempo or um, moving with a purpose. The point is, if the fire's on the left side of the block, very simple, you walk on the right side of the block. And you walk up and you paint the picture of a movie set, okay? And you just take it for what it is. You slow down, you look. Listen, you're there later in the fire. You're not the first two units, okay? So you can slow down and you truly can paint the picture of what is going on. So as you focal into the actual fire building, now you're at exposure one or exposure A in the street level waiting for your assignment, you look up, now you already have the complete screenshot of what truly was going on. And that's as simply as walking on the opposite side of the block to the fire building. Don't rush in and just take it easy. Walk like a gentleman. Walk like, you know, just cool cat walking down the street, man. And there's a fire and you're going to go to work. And that's how it rolls out. And when that rolls out like that, <laughs> when you get to the fire floor, you're a gentleman. <laughs> I freaking love it, man. I absolutely love it. Sean, go ahead, brother. I heard you. Go ahead. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and that and that's it. It's it's being professional. Our brother down there, uh, Chief Solar, down in the in the audience. He he preaches the professional brotherhood. It's not about the paycheck. It's about doing this job professionally, regardless of your career, regardless of your volunteer, paid on call, whatever. What Mickey just said is this mark of a professional. We are here to make a difference. We're trained to make the difference. And if we do our jobs correctly, things are better. I love it, man. Nick, when are you going to start your own show? That's what I want to know. I mean, I, I just, you know, you got uh, you got a lot of good, all, all of you guys. I mean, you guys have so much to bring to the table. So I, I appreciate you guys being here tonight and, and sharing, um, you know, your experiences and your stories. Is anybody down in the the uh, the audience here, the gallery. Anybody want to hop on stage and uh, ask a question or or hit on something that maybe we didn't talk about that's prevalent in your first do and something we missed? Um, man, the the point of Clubhouse is to have that open conversation. So don't be afraid to raise your hand uh, and come up on stage. We'd be happy to chat with you. Um, you know these are, these are gentle giants up here, so they you know they love talking with anybody because it's all about the passion for the job. Um, Sean, on your list of notes, anything else we missed? Positioning was good, brother. That was a, that was a good, uh, bullet point there. Anything else we missed? Because my list is, uh, I've been doodling all over it and writing down quotes and, and everything else. So I just want to make sure, uh, you know, we did it right tonight. What else? Yeah. So I had, let's see, I had, I had vent for fire, vent for life. We talked about it. I had, uh, upper floor fires. We talked about it. I had, I had, uh, the movement, the discipline. We talked about it. How about how about this, Sean? Let's talk about you know talk about finding the seat of the fire, getting water on the fire, right? I mean that's that's ultimately the mission of what we're doing here. Um, how important is that second line? The uh, you know and and uh, and the operation of the second line um, and so on. I, I I sometimes think that maybe that doesn't get the conversation it deserves, especially depending on again building construction, the type of building and so on. Um, I want to circle back, talk a little engine work here, real quick. The importance of that second line, the interior stairs, um, setting up for success, maybe finding a different entry point. Uh, for that line or your third line, you know, things like that. Maybe we could head on that real quick. Larry, you want to run with that? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the second due line is often confused. And a lot of it comes down to the incident command structures of the respective department. You know, a lot of times the second line, okay, is that going to be fire attack or is that backup? And that's an entirely different conversation, as Vicky has referenced a couple sure. of times. People often get confused between what a backup line is and what an additional attack line is. If it's a big defensive fire and it's big and pretty, we get that. Okay, we understand what that point is. But if you're pushing the second line through the door, whether it's coming through Alpha or Charlie, is your assignment fire attack? I mean, if you're in a disciplined, very structured department in Maryland where they push in from Charlie to check the basement uh, and on Alpha it goes to the first floor, I get that. If you're following SOPs, do like, you know, do your thing. But in the absence of that, again, it goes back to the discipline that Mickey mentioned earlier, and I think Sean did also. We have to have the discipline to understand, and if we don't get told what our assignment is, we have to ask the question, am I backing up fire attack or am I pushing it as a second line? And depending upon how structured your incident command system is, am I working for that person or am I autonomous as a company to where I take on the tactical you know, needs as I see fit? And, and I think that a lot of times it's very often confused. Not to, and, put, not to put you on the spot, Larry, but so very often a line is stretched and in, in quote unquote is the backup line, right? And then that line typically is either abandoned or it is uh, pushed into the building and it turns into uh, a second line and we don't replace that line with a backup line. I see it all the time. Thoughts on that? No, and you're 100% right. That's either because of a lack of discipline, a lack of clear instruction, or it's because uh, we get down to it. And it's like, again, Mickey mentioned, we get in there and we get panicked or we feel like we have to do something. So, okay, well, I'm going to push past the first well, what do you so? What do you consider as the backup? What's the mission of the backup line? I mean, let's let's clarify that. Let's define. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot because I'm sure everybody has a little bit different take on it, if you will. But uh, you know, in in my world, it's it's it can be very simplistic that that line is dedicated to support the initial line, and it does nothing but that. Exactly. If you're going to use the word backup, if I sign a company as a backup line. What I'm envisioning is that they're going to hold the staircase for the crew that's uh, operating above, that they're going to ensure that they don't have fire that develops behind them, that rolls over them, and be in a position to where they can support that. But that's based upon the information that you're getting from the inside officers. Too many guys that sit outside in the Tahoe want to dictate what the fire ground tactical objectives are based upon what they see one dimension. A good incident commander is going to listen to the officers and paint that complete picture based upon what they're getting back from those inside, those doing the job. Because that will dictate how you support those actions. If the fire attack officer is saying, hey, we got water in the fire, we're good, then that resource that I have can be better utilized elsewhere. If he's saying, hey, we're making very little progress, then I'm going to support his efforts. Specific to the backup line, their whole purpose is to make sure the first line achieves their objective and doesn't get the fire. Love it. Nick? Yeah, just a couple of thoughts on that. Um, And I agree with all that. To me, the back of my, you know, we always talk about exposures. So when you arrive on a fire and if fire is not expanding to exposure two or four, whatever it may be, uh, B or D, wherever you are in the country, if fire is not extending to those exposures, your main exposure becomes the brothers on the first line. That's, that's your main exposure problem as the backup line. So when you stretch that line, keep in mind, you have to stretch a line longer then the first line stretch because once that line is in operation and operating properly, you're going to be moved like, like uh, Larry said. So now there's a better spot for you on the fire ground. But once that line is operating, 
doing the job, putting water on the fire. You now maybe move to the floor above the fire. So that's when you move. So to understand the analogy of what I'm trying to get at, and it seems pretty straightforward, but if you've seen the movie Full, uh, Full Metal Jacket, right? You know the part where they're, the sniper is in the city, right? And they're firing down on the, on, on the platoon moving in. The company, you know, and I always say the engine company is the infantry of the fire service. I say it all the time. So here's the infantry moving into the city in Vietnam, taking on sniper fire. Once they located that sniper and they pin the sniper down, now the companies now who were backing up, the members moving in, now moves in with them. It's the same concept on the fire ground. And like, it's maybe not a great analogy, but it's the kind of idea of like, leapfrog in a sense we're okay we got water on the fire here good let's move that backup line because our exposure is now protected or in that movie okay now our exposure mainly was the brothers making that move right they're making the move on the sniper they're now in the city behind the wall now i'm going to make the next move to protect the next area and get into that building and flank that sniper so same thing was now the line is going to the floor above to flank that fire it's the same concept so the backup line is good until water starts flowing on the fire. And once the water is on the fire, you can now make maneuvers. But now let's talk about when things go wrong. Things go sideways. You make the move, right? So now you're flanking that sniper, but now you're taking more fire on from another sniper, and that first line that was stretched is under fire. Or we have a burst length. It burned through, whatever it may be, on the fire ground. It's easier to bring artillery in, or the next company, from the point of where they approached or stretching a dry line is what I'm getting at, rather than bringing that company that's flanking the fire back down the stairs. So a roundabout way, your first priority as a backup line is to back up the first two company, the engine company. Once they're good and going, you can now flank the fire and go above. Things go wrong with the first two company, it's easier to stretch a dry line to the point of the seat of fire than bring that charge line down the stairs. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, all of it. I mean, it, it, and that's the thing. I mean, I what what you guys are hitting on here, and Sean, if you want to hop in too, brother. But you know what you guys are hitting here with the you know one the the backup lines got to be incredibly disciplined to understand their role and function, um, and you know, and that that word discipline keeps coming up uh, tonight. But it makes it makes perfectly good sense that that's what's needed. I mean, they they are mission driven on as to protect you know, to protect that first line and their surroundings to ensure that they can do that job correctly um, and so on. And uh, and it takes absolute discipline to do that. Um, and it takes a command staff and company officers to understand and allow that to happen for sure. Um, I don't think that that happens enough on the fire ground. I know at the fires I go to, uh, a backup line on that initial line is, uh, I can tell you that's uh, almost uh, non-existent, I'll be honest. It takes, it takes, it, it's a ton of discipline, Jeremy. We keep using that word so it, it, the listeners should understand how critical it is. <clears throat> we hear oftentimes it's a race to get that second line because they think just kind of what Mickey said, hey, the first line got it. They're in position. They're good. We're going to get to make that, you know, we're going to get to make that attic in a bloom frame house. We're going to get some good fire up there. But the problem is all too often they sacrifice the water supply. Our second do engine here is responsible for setting up the water supply. We make the attack off the Brewster tank. Um, you know, you could do a whole heck of a lot with 750 gallons of sure. water if you get it if you get it in place. So, so, so often you'll see engines racing to get that second line, 
thinking they're going to get, you know, the mother load, so to speak, and it screws up something else. So, you know, this, the backup line is what it is. Our lines are generally, like we said, attack, exposure, backup, period. And when the, when the brothers are protected on the first line, the second floor becomes our exposure or the attic becomes our exposure, similar to what Mickey said. And, you know, we have to, we, we can't always be the first do and some fires you're going to go to, you're just not going to get work. You're, you take that as an advantage and you learn from it. Hey, we made a good stretch anyways, regardless of whatever X, Y, and Z, you know, but it all goes back to almost the first thing we talked about at eight Oh five was hose line selection. The, the second line comes in and I'm like, just grab this one. It's easier to get off. We're going to grab the six length, six length pre-connect because we want to take, we want to beat engine six. Well, now the six link pre-connect's gone and it's in the driveway side sitting there dry. Engine six gets the five lengths and they can't make this make the attic or make the whatever. You know, it, it, it's it's not a game we're playing here. You know, as much as we like to think it is, it, you, you have to you have to think about everything you do could derail. And what do they say? The second or third domino that falls on the fire ground, that's when someone gets hurt or somebody gets, God forbid, gets killed. For sure. Good points. For sure. Um Hour and 25 minutes into this. We're going to go for a few more minutes. Um, I do really want to see if there's any questions down below. Anybody that is listening, here we go. Uh, we got a question coming up from Ken. We'll get him up here. And uh, as soon as he pops up, off we go, man. Ken, welcome. Thanks for hopping in. I truly appreciate you uh, willing to speak, man. Go ahead, brother. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, guys. How's it going? Um couple things that the, the truck guys didn't really touch on and one thing i know as a past ic is one of the biggest things i looked for was the report from the roof the first in truck first guy up on the roof i needed to know what was going on in the back in the in the in the different areas of the building sometimes you got uh, a shaft way or something you can't see from any sides of the building that unless you're inside so you need that report from the roof, you know, whether it's one guy, two guys goes up, but you definitely need that report. And the, the other one is, is the aggressive company comes in, whether it's your rescue or it happens to be in, in you know, your, your second in truck or in another in engine is as an IC, I used to love having guys, come, you know, the company officer come up to me and say, chief, what do you need? You know, cause then, 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 you know, these guys want to go to work and here they are looking for you for, to, for their assignment. Yeah, for I mean, for sure. So reports from the rear. So we didn't talk about size up, right? That's one topic we did not uh, hit on tonight when we talked about the initial line stretch, right, and coordination. Um, size up is super important, uh, and it can happen on many different levels, and the report could be, um, you know, that, that size up can be given by a few different players on the fire ground. Um, anybody want to tackle that one real quick, the report from the rear, how critical that is, and uh, the size up, whether it's from the roof firefighter looking down or, or somebody that's doing a, a quick 360. Um, Mick, I see you're off uh, mute. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, just uh, that's great point, uh, Ken. Um, so as far as the roof firefighter giving that report, um, I always say it's mindset versus skill set. So so many times when you arrive on a fire, and I'm going to speak in multiple dwellings, so that's that's mainly what I what I do. But you pull up three in the morning, right, and you have the front fire escape upper floors packed full of people screaming. But you don't really see anything on arrival. So as the roof man, I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of weird. Make my way to the roof. But that's going to tell me the fact that the top floor fire escape in the front is packed full of people. Nothing's showing. 
it tells me my size up on the fly, like I like to speak about, is that the fire is on a lower floor in the rear of the building, and that now public hallway is completely charged, and these people are freaking out. So my first goal when I get up there is to open that bulkhead and give that report to the chief and say, now, I always say I don't like to give that report that the bulkhead's open because the companies know the bulkhead's open, but in a situation like that, you have to give that report that the bulkhead is open and that the primaries in the bulkhead are either negative or they're or you have a victim there because that's something where you're sizing up when you come to your building there's a good chance that people ran up to the bulkhead and it might be locked okay now let's flip that around to you pull up three in the morning and there's a guy walking out with his uh his dog in his hand and his uh his razor scooter walking out and saying yeah there's a fire in the building but there's but there's nothing going on but he's leaving the building so that, as a roof man now, that's telling me that, okay, public hallway is probably pretty secure because that guy's walking out like he's going to the park for the day. He's just leaving the building. So the fire is probably in an upper floor. Door is secured. Hallway is pretty clear. So my first thing is to find those shafts you're talking about. Do the 360, right? When you get up there, I do the 360 and give a report to the chief at this point saying, all right, chief, I'm on the roof. I got fired out two floors on the fifth store. I'm sorry, two windows on the fifth floor uh, shaft in the rear. So these are these things that you were asking about, those, those reports are very crucial, um, but it's by understanding when you arrive on the fire where you should focus your energy and your attention to to give those reports. Yeah, good, very excellent, Nick. Uh, good points there. Um, Ken, I can speak on the suburban point of view, just, um, you know, uh, my point of view is if the if the incident commander, which you you know you, you alluded to that you were are you know um, it, it is important to get that rear report. Um, it might not be you that can get it uh, firsthand. You might have to rely on um, your first in company or another chief or somebody like that. But the importance of um, setting the framework on on that size up that your companies know how important that report is from the sides of rear. If you don't have eyes on it, or maybe you can't, you know, if it's a row of tenements and you know, it's the block is 300 feet long and you can't get to the rear, you're going to, your eyes and ears at the command post are going to rely solely on that rear, that rear company or that roof fireman or somebody that works their way through the, through an adjoining uh, building or what have you. So, but that report's incredible. And, and Mick brings up a good point is, you know, there's a lot of indications to tell you what's going on, but the best thing you could do is get your eyes on it. And if it's not your eyes, it's got to be another company that's at least giving that IC uh, the information so that you can process because things might look okay in the front because everything's venting out the rear four windows on the third floor. And, uh, and you're not seeing it from the front. So that report from the rear is super critical. And Jeremy, if you can't get to the rear, don't be scared to get on the radio right. and say, I'm delayed. I can't get there. That way, as a roof man, now you're in tune with, okay, my OV or the, whoever's giving my 360 in the rear can't make it. I have to make it a priority to tell the chief the rear's clear or I got fired out three windows. And Mick, that goes right to your point that you hit on before with communication. Don't tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you can't do. All right, cool. Uh, Ken, and I think the other thing you talked about, too, were companies coming in and reporting to the command post and then telling them you're ready to go to work and you're giving out jobs. And I couldn't agree with you more on a volunteer aspect of that. That's typical of your mutual aid companies that are coming in, uh, reporting into the command post. And then, uh, you know, the IC is, is giving them work, giving them orders. And, and for that aspect of it, super critical and super important. And that's why running 
a very good and tight ship command post that you know the discipline and the positions of your companies so that you know what jobs need to be done. There's nothing better than that, having those reinforcements coming in. Hey, Jeremy. Do it. I can put it in there. Yeah. Uh, as far as companies reporting into the command post. Yep. If, if you've got a structured, extremely structured, well-oiled, well-adhered-to SOP for all of your auto-aid companies and anybody that's going to make the box with you, that works fine. Yep. To be that Debbie Downer, realistically, if a company shows up and they're available, all I want to hear is stage. I don't want to bum rush in the command post because, quite honestly, if you get a garden apartment, if you get something, I want them in the rig to where if, the, if it's tool specific with the task I get them, they don't have to go back. And they don't just have a set of irons when I need them to have a set of whatever. Uh, I want them on their apparatus. I want them staged to where they're readily available to complete the assignment. And if I need them to move and I need their rig, I need them to be with that to be able to do it to minimize the downtime, uh, the downtime to implement. And I think that a lot of times you wind up with four or five companies all at the command post. And everybody's wanting to go to work, and it turns into a bidding war. And all that does is, is it detracts away from the incident commander's focus and whoever else is his aid, when realistically, I think that, not to say it works everywhere, but stay in your apparatus, tell them your stage, and sooner or later, you know, down here, the, the one thing that, that's a pet peeve, oh, we're engine so-and-so, we're approaching the scene, do you have orders? Well, my standard answer is, if I had orders, I would give them to you before you got here. In the absence of that stage, until I give you because, again, it goes back to radio discipline. It goes back to we're tying up the airwaves that could have been better served for a mayday or that critical report of what couldn't be accomplished, as Mickey said. So I don't think that it's always a good thing for the companies to bum rush the command post and say, hey, we're here ready to go to work. I think that it's based upon geography. It's based upon resource allocation. And there's a lot of things. But to say that all the companies show up at the CP and say, hey, look, I'm ready to go to work, that's not always a good thing. No, I know, and and I don't know. Uh, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. No, yeah, you, you know, he, you're right, but but so sometimes here, you know, engines one, two, and three, ladder one and two have their jobs pretty laid out by SOP. But my second team, like I talked about earlier, they're kind of on their own, barring orders from the chief. They hand head in. So if they see the chief, they'll come up. Chief, you need anything? No? Okay, great. I'm going to go do my thing. I'm going to get above the fire, start to search. I'm going to go do some recon, do whatever. And the same with the rescue company. Just because we have one rescue company covers the city, sometimes they get in a little late, regardless or depending on where the fire is. Oftentimes, they'll just catch the chief's eye. Chief, what do you need from us? Rescue's here, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, the staging thing, Chief, is hard, man. It's hard. People want to go to work and, you know, send these guys here and stage. And it, and it takes a lot of discipline. And I'll be guilty. I'm the first one to admit I'm guilty of it sometimes. Truck 100%. seven's coming in. You got, you got orders. But, you know, t I think Ken's point was kind of if you see the chief, you know, versus just hammering them, you should know your job unless you don't. You know what I'm saying? Like my second team doesn't have orders unless they get them from me. The chief can, over, chief can tell them, send, you know, most of the time it works out rescue most of the time they know what they're going to do but the chief may have orders based on something they see hey go check that exposure or go i heard there's a you know dog in the basement go see if you can find it that type of thing so um yeah uh, i i think there's i think operationally it it works for where you are i like larry's point of view i i've never heard it spoken like that um i i do agree that whole approaching do you have orders thing drives me bananas especially when it's your first in companies and it happens a lot in the volunteer world um and that just drives me crazy because the first three apparatus know their they know their jobs it's that simple and you should um and and you know two engines in a truck you know i mean that that is as simple as it gets right 
Um, but uh, no, but Chief, uh, Ken, uh, good with the. Any, you got any follow up? You good? No, I'm good, uh, Jeremy. Cool. Awesome, I just, brother. You know, just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. I, I, my my point was like like Sean said, it, it's not so much my my later in companies. It's my my fourth and fifth two companies that may may be my second ladder or maybe my 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 rescue. And I, I know those crews are aggressive. I may need to put them to work special somewhere, you know, somewhere where I need them immediately. Yeah, good points. All good points. And I appreciate the uh, the size up conversation, too. That was uh, it was good, man. A lot of value there. Chief, thanks for hopping up on the stage, man. I appreciate it. Anyone else in the audience have anything that they want to share or, uh, you know, any questions or comments? If not, I think we're probably going to start to wrap unless uh, anybody has anything else. Oh, here we go. I got another one coming up. Absolutely. Let's see. George, how are you, brother? Uh, doing good, Jeremy. How are you tonight? Good, man. Let's roll. What do you got? So I got a question about staffing. The okay. other day when I was on shift at the firehouse, it was me and one other guy covering the, covering the box. Um, and that was it. So if we caught a fire and, I mean, we show up and we got to get that first line on the ground, is it best to go for big water or is it best to – you know, do what we can do, the two of us, and and try to knock it down from the outside and do a transitional attack? I, I mean, uh, what do you guys think? Wow, that's a loaded question. Loaded question. Because it, it all stems from what's your second in company, where, how far away, what type of, you know, do you have domestic water supply? There's, you know, a lot, how advanced is the fire? I mean, there's a lot of variables there. Mick, you're unmuted. Go ahead, brother. George, thanks for coming up. Question, uh, how... How big is the tank water you guys are using? Um, our first out engine has a uh, thousand gallons of water on it. Yeehaw. Um, my next in company is probably coming from five to seven miles away. Um, if we don't get any volunteers to show up, um, if we get volunteers to show up, my second out engine has a 750 gallon tank on it. Um, and then we've actually, we've got a 109 foot aerial ladder. That's got a 500 gallon tank on it. It's just a matter of getting people to show up to bring apparatus to the scene. So my opinion, and it's just my opinion, obviously, is um, uh, with 1,000 gallons on arrival, I think your move has to be go into tank water and put the fire out. Because water quickly in a fire saves more lives than anything else, right? So by worrying about connecting to a hydrant, laying in with, I'm sure you're probably using 5-inch because that's the industry, quote-unquote, industry stranded now, which is, I think completely absurd in understaffed departments, but that's what we're doing. Um, is that, do you guys have five inch hose? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much all we run is five inch yeah. because that's another issue that I really don't want to get into. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. But like five inch is like wrestling an alligator. So it's like, it's insane. So my opinion is something like that. You pull up um, where I grew up as a young firefighter, we had a thousand gallon tanks. Um, we put a lot of fire out with a thousand gallons. You'd be surprised. Hell yeah. If you're not, if you're not putting it out with a thousand gallons you kind of have to reevaluate what you're doing but you have to conserve water you can't just openly flow water um hit fire down shut it down move hit fire shut it down move hit fire shut it down move um the academies they teach you to open up and flow and move constantly and i understand that it makes total sense but when you're conserving water it's it's simple as you're you're going to a gunfight and you get bullets in your pocket you kind of put the bullet in the chamber every time you want to fire you know so it's the same concept that where you have to kind of have to preserve what you're doing um, so my opinion on that is just go with the tank water and be aggressive and put water on the fire. 
Love it. I'd agree with that 100%. Love it. You know, one, one time you don't want to be, you know, or you do want to be stingy with your water. Usually we tell people, hey, you got the solution in your hand. Don't be stingy. But when you're in that operation, like like Mick just said, you can knock it down. You can you can have the whole problem solved. And not only that, but take it one step further. You're running a two-man engine. So you're going to take the time to drop a line. You got a 1,000-gallon tank. If you could pull up at the address with a 1,000-gallon tank, Nozzle man's stretching a line. The backup is your driver. He's setting the pump, and he's at least getting your line pushed in for you, right? I mean, you're talking limited staffing, you know, so you're not, the driver's not even getting water from the hydrant anyway to him. He's using that tank water, put it, probably put an air pack on, probably helping you push that line in, burning through that thousand gallons. And your next in company is making up your hydrant anyway and charging that line down to the engine. So, you know, I, I'm just, you know, rationalizing it in my head. So, I mean, in, in my point of view, too, I mean, you know, why lay that line when a second in company can lay that line or lay out for you? Um, you know, and, and Mickey's right, man, a thousand gallons, it, obviously it's probably more of a rural setting with a thousand gallon tank in your engine. And so if that's the case, brother, uh, you can make a hell of a knock with a thousand gallons for sure. Well, and this is the first place I've worked where we've been kind of rural. Every other place I've worked has been more, more of a Metro setting. Um, and so it's, it's been a little bit of a challenge for me to adapt to. Larry, go ahead, brother. Hey, I think uh, either Sean or Mickey said it earlier about, or maybe it was Rob, estimating the stretch uh, on your house as a rule of thumb. You know, and the same thing can be applied here. You know, our goal is always a 200 GPM handle. And so realistically, with the 1,000 gallons of water, that's a five-minute handle. I think that is a good rule of thumb. It's something that I would apply if I was in, in his situation is, you know, if I pull up in the conditions and the building construction of where the fire is and where it's going, if I think I can get a handle on it in five minutes, I agree with Mickey. Push in, knock it out, and, and do what you can. Uh, but realistically, you know, ha- have those predetermined benchmarks in your head of, okay, this involvement equals that, yeah, we can push in. And this amount of involvement or this type of structure can't. And just use that as that rolling Rolodex in your head of, of, of a frame of reference of, I know I got five minutes worth of water at 200 GPM. Now, I'm not saying and you may run 150 GPM handlines. I don't know your setup. But if you have a basic frame of reference based upon how your lines are set up and your tank water and your water supply, five minutes and you said your second in company of no volunteers show up is five to six minutes away. Well, as Mickey said, that's flowing wide open for five minutes. If you're judicious with it, then you can push in. You can do that knowing that your second dude is going to secure your water supply before you run out. That lends itself to an offensive attack as opposed to running. Two quick things with that is um, when you have a nozzle in that situation in a private dwelling with a thousand gallons of water, treat it like it's your own home. That's what I was told as a young firefighter. It was treat this like it's your own home and conserve the water like you don't want to damage your own home. Use it when you need to stay alive. Use it when you need to put the fire out, but just don't flow it to 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 flow it you know so that's something in the back of your mind if you treat it like your own home you're not going to be using water recklessly and talking about communication going back to that is um it's so crucial that the chauffeur or engineer whatever terminology is the guy who's pumping the rig um you have to be on the radio telling your nozzle guy okay quarter tank half tank all right we're on our last light brother like just heads up you know and then okay now we're on 
uh, we're off tank water, we're, you know, we're getting supplied now. You have to communicate. That's communication that has to be done if you're going to operate on tank water. Awesome. Thank you, fellas. Perfect. Thanks for the tips, guys. I appreciate it. I've definitely got some hills I got to climb with this place because there's a lot of things that need to be fixed, but uh, it's a challenge that I'm definitely up for. Good, man. Keep up the fight. Good work. Thank you for hopping up tonight and, uh, you know, your willingness to uh, to ask questions and share, man. Appreciate it. Anyone else down in the audience wants to hop up, please do. If not, we're going to start to wrap. Um, fellas, I don't know if anybody else wants to come up, but in the meantime, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, thanks for taking two hours out of your night to uh, hop up and just share some, uh, some stories, experiences, and uh, some ideas because I think uh, nights like this matter, and I think... Uh, sharing a good word like this and just talking shop, whether it's at your kitchen table or back step of the engine or, or on a clubhouse. Um, you know, it is an, it, it's a forum where we can share ideas and, and find a community that, uh, that matters. And so, um, thank you for hopping in tonight. I truly appreciate it. Um, real quick, uh, any plugs, Mickey, uh, you want to talk about top floor real quick, Sean and, uh, and Larry, if you guys, if anybody wants to reach out or they have the ability to find you, where can they find you? Mickey, would you mind going first? Sure. Uh, at top floor tactics. Um, so any place you can really find me is on Instagram. Um, thoughts in the words. That's about it. Uh, I am offer a program fire Academy to the fire floor. Um, I go anywhere in the nation. If you'd like it, just, uh, DM me and we'll talk about it. Okay. Thanks. I love it, man. Thanks, Mick, for being here tonight, brother. I truly appreciate you. Sean, you're next on my list here. Yeah, so uh, same with Mick. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not awesome at social media yet. I'm, I'm working on putting some <laughs> some thoughts into uh, into posts. I'll come up with one every now and again, but Instagram is the best way to find me. I, I, I'm kind of uh, starting to shut the Facebook down to just people I know personally. Yeah. Um, but I'm always willing. My, you know, DM me, hit me up, whatever. Um, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to do better at the social media thing, but before we go, you know, everything we talked about tonight was simple, simple stuff Yeah. to the, the late Leo Stapleton, the commission, he always, one of his best quotes was, we don't need to make this complicated. The fire grip brings us all the complications. Nobody here talked about a gizmo or gadget. We talked about basic firefighting 101. So I'm on Facebook or Instagram. It's just my name, Sean Egan spelt with the E N and uh, I'd be happy to connect with any of you. Appreciate you listening. Beautiful. Very profound, Sean. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you being here. Larry, Chief, go ahead, brother. Hey, uh, at 68 Trucking, I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Uh, I have an opinion on just about everything. You sure do. Oh, really? You're going to start now? Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to mention the first time we met, I couldn't stand you. I think it was was, uh, mutual, and uh, and now I love you. There you go. I love you, too. Uh, Yeah, at Trucking. (laughs) Uh, love to talk to anybody uh, anytime beautiful thank you chief i appreciate it rob's up here too he's been listening he hopped in earlier but uh, rob thanks for taking some time out of your night and uh hopping up here with us i appreciate it i appreciate all of you um and no I, problem yeah and I, I just you know um man i i just it's it's i wish i had more time to do more of this and to bring up different people and so on this is a community where you know not a lot of people are on this clubhouse app yet. Um, and I, I'm excited about it because there's no other platform that allows for the interaction that we can have. Um, being able to have people up here talking about a topic and then anyone in the world 
having the ability to hop up and ask a question or pick the minds of somebody that, uh, you know, that in my world I deem as, uh, you know, a, a specialist, if they will, that they have a message to share, they have experience, uh, and, and they want to talk. And, and so for that, I am in just so grateful and that this platform is incredible. And I ask and challenge all of you to go push this platform and educate people about what it's about. Um, we do take these recordings and they go out on our podcast platform too. So tonight, uh, this will get uploaded within the next week. And then, uh, so that people can hear it on our audio platforms as well, but you don't get the interaction. And, uh, you know, this is a place where you can find some answers to things that you're looking for. Um, and, uh, and tonight was uh, no exception to that. So, uh, guys, thanks for hopping in tonight. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of this to everybody in the crowd, the audience. Thank you for, uh, taking a couple, couple minutes out of your night and, uh, listening in and, uh, please think about clubhouse, think about your questions and, uh, you can always reach out during the episode. And even after the fact, don't, don't be afraid to DM us or, uh, shoot us a, a question or, or a comment. We'd love to hear from you guys. So thank you to everybody being here tonight. Uh, I'm Jeremy with national fire radio and, uh, you know, this is our national fire radio channel on clubhouse. Please follow it. Uh, that way when we go live, you guys will see that we're up. So follow the club national, fire radio you can follow me as well jeremy donch and uh and you'll see when we're putting content up you can hop in the conversation and uh we'd love to have you in the community so with that uh going forward have a good night and uh, enjoy the rest of your week and uh, thanks for being here everyone and we're gonna uh, end the meeting thanks so much Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week and listening to another episode on the National Fire Radio Podcast channels. We truly appreciate the support. We thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to our interviews, our roundtables, our discussions. It means the world. Like, share, leave a comment. The more we engage, the more we can grow and push the word out and keep making this job better.